Uh, good morning, everyone. Please feel free to have a seat. I'm going to invite one of our wonderful students, Kaylee, on up to uh, do our scripture reading for the day. Um, we're reading Mark 10, 1 through 16. Then Jesus left the place and went to a region of Judah and beyond the Jordan River. Again, the crowds gathered to him and again, as was his custom, and he taught them. Then some of the Pharisees came and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses commanded you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of, di of dismissal and to divorce her. But then Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. But the beginning of the creation, he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two be will become one flesh. So they are no, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In the house, once again, the, the disciples asked him. So he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now the people are bringing the children for him to touch. But the disciples scolded those who brought them. But then, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not try to stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. After he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in a moment of silence as we think about and ask God to reveal himself in our scripture today? Father, as we approach your word today, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, and also that we would feel your presence tangibly this morning as we just talk about some, some really tough stuff. Um, God, we give you this time today, and we pray it's for your glory alone. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so happy to be with you today. As usual, I'm having microphone issues just seems to be the, the go for me. Um, my name is Shana. I am the Director of Family Ministries here at Littleton Christian, and uh, I'm excited to get into this scripture with you today. Well, actually excited probably isn't the right word, because this is some tough stuff, um, but I'm happy to be um, with my community of faith as we process this together today. We were in Mark chapter 10 um, today. Sometimes I find myself uh, really underwhelmed by the titles modern Bible publishers give these little sections of scripture. Um, mine just says here at the top, divorce. Um, <laughs> I feel like what it should say <laughs> is uh, heads up, <laughs> painful, controversial, difficult thing ahead, weird conversation coming your way. I mean, what in the world is going on in this passage? So many things, and hopefully we're going to kind of dig into some of them today. 
Um, but first, I, I want to just kind of share um, a personal note. I mean, actually, the whole sermon is kind of a personal note um, because how much my own life and my own ministry with kids and students has been affected and influenced by divorce. But this part is my explicit personal note. Um, my own parents divorced when I was seven. Uh, of course, were difficult times and experiences for me and for my parents and my sisters. Uh, I've walked with many stu students during and after divorce. I've walked with students as their parents remarried. Um, and I, I know the stuff. I've seen the stuff. Um, I've seen how difficult these things are. Um, sometimes every once in a while, like, someone will ask me, like, don't you just wish that your parents had never divorced? Like, what would have happened if they stuck it out? And honestly, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, it's too simple of a question for too complex of a situation. I'm sure as a kid I had moments um, where I would have said yes, but also I probably had moments where I would have said no. I think it's better. My feelings and thoughts are complicated, to say the least, and I suppose I would rather have skipped all of the suffering and the pain and the difficult things, but also I want my parents to be happy. I love them. I have two separate families now, and sometimes that's a lot to navigate, um, but I also have step-parents who have become really important, integral parts of my life, and I really can't imagine my family without them. They're family. So it's complicated, <laughs> as I'm sure some of you are feeling. Um, and also, for kids of divorce, this question feels a little silly, because at the end of the day, we have absolutely no control over this situation. We have no say. We have no power. And that's a part of what makes it so hard. Um, at the same time, I've witnessed marriages that seem to come to an end for what seems like no good reason at all, um, for reasons that are not enough. I've known marriages that end because one person found someone else and left, or because a spouse was abusive, which is horrible, or because of addiction and substance abuse, and the list goes on. There are people sitting here right now, watching right now, who have their own complicated stories of divorce that can't be whittled down to simple phrases. At the end of the day, all I really know is how messy our world is. I know how hard marriage is. I know how absolutely not black and white these things are in a I also really know that Jesus died on the cross so that all the sinful and messy and fallen things would be redeemed and made whole again in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. So as Jesus engages with the Pharisees in this passage about divorce, he is once again showing us what the kingdom of heaven is like, what things are supposed to be like. And he is also reminding us that he is Lord over all and Savior of all. So with that in mind, let's get into this newest confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus left that place, went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan River. Again, crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Then some Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? All right, some here is really important. Is this going in now still? Oh, okay. Um, some context here is really important. Divorce was a widely practiced um, thing by many cultures in both Old and New Testament times. It's just kind of always been there. In the first century, that is the time that Jesus um, was preaching, um, we know that Roman law allowed both men and women to divorce and explanation was required.
We're trying again. Hopefully I don't gesture too emphatically with the mic. In first century Jewish society, though, almost all of the time it is the man that divorces his wife. There are hardly any instances where a woman is the one who divorces a husband. Um, women wouldn't have had enough social capital. They wouldn't have had enough wealth in order to um, file, well, get a divorce, not file. That's, that's a modern-day term. Um, only the most elite and wealthy ones would have been able to do this. The divorce was a male privilege in first-century Jewish society. Some other important context here is that Jesus had likely traveled to the Judean wilderness by the Jordan in the same area where John the Baptist had so recently had his base of operations. Now, if you remember, John the Baptist was put in prison um, and then beheaded for criticizing the ruler of Galilee, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, for divorcing the king's daughter and marrying his brother's wife, Herodias, who also divorced her husband in order to marry Herod. So, this was likely pretty major gossip around town. And the fact that a very well-known prophet had publicly criticized this and been executed for it made it even juicier gossip. Politics, elites, prophets, it's all there. It's quite the situation. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, remarks that it reminds him of the early 1990s when the world had British royal fever. Now, I'm not so sure that the royal fever has really gone away in, in uh, these past decades, um, but at the time, it had become known that Prince Charles and Princess Diana's marriage was falling apart. Every reporter wanted a scoop to the point of even calling prominent religious figures in the British church for their opinion on the possible divorce of the royals. Anything even remotely written about divorce um, was assumed to be about Charles and Diana. It was obsessive, N.T. Wright's comments. Some of you might even remember this. We won't talk about how old I was when this happened. That will probably make some of you upset. So this similar situation is at play in the background when the Pharisees approach Jesus with this question about divorce. They want to discredit him both culturally, politically, and legally. So take a look at verses 3 and 4. Here is Jesus' response. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. Now, the Pharisees are referring to a law recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Um, and this law says, if a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something indecent in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. When she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. If the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, gives her the papers, then evicts her from his house, or if the second husband who married her dies, her first husband who divorced her is not permitted to remarry her. Okay. <laughs> so we're not going to get too in the weeds on that specific law today. But I will tell you <laughs> that the original purpose of the law was to protect women from being exploited for their dowry, for their bride price. If you're not sure what that is, you can Google it later. But over time, it became more about the, the circumstances that made divorce permissible, okay? So within Jewish camps, there's different ways and, and contradictions of, of even how to interpret this law. Um, some camps say that divorce can only happen in the case of infidelity, 
um, or unchasteness, as the Mishnah says, um, or all the way to she could be divorced for spoiling a dish or if he finds someone fairer than she. So that's Deuteronomy 24. Back to Mark 10. Um, here is how Jesus responds, verse 5. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus completely bypasses this question of the case law in Deuteronomy and instead focuses way back on Genesis to God's original intent for marriage. He focuses on the ethics. Jesus is using wording from Genesis um, chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 5 to remind his listeners of the creation order and God's plan for marriage before the fall. From the beginning, God made humans male and female. Then God brought them together in marriage, and where two become one, there is no longer two. A new thing is formed, a new family, a new creation, and God does not intend for this new one thing to be separated. But God's intention for marriage doesn't hold after the fall. The problem is not with the ideal, and the problem is not with the law, it's with the people. Israel was just like everybody else, imagine that. Prone to exploit or abuse. Divorce had become a part of the fabric of Israel's reality because of the patriarchal mindset of men and their actions. Hard-heartedness, Jesus says, or the inability to have one's heart in tune with God's best intention and plan. By using Genesis, Jesus insists that God did not intend patriarchy, but created persons as male and female beings. And in Genesis, it is not the woman who is given to the power of man to continue his family line and increase his social capital. No, notice, if you go back to the scripture, is the man who severs his connection with his patriarchal family, and the two become one common human life because they are created as equals. Marriage, then, is not an institution to be dominated, but a new creation of God. And both husband and wife are equally responsible to practice discipleship and lifelong obedience. And God is the one who is over this marriage, because he is the one that joins together. So this is the original intent for marriage that Jesus has pointed us to in Genesis. This was the intent gone wrong and given boundaries in the law in Deuteronomy. So logically, then, if one plus one equals two, if a couple so joined together do divorce, the divorce is not legitimate according to how God intended for things to be. So if the man divorces and remarries, he has then committed adultery against the wife he divorced. Jesus assumes that the one flesh union is still in existence after divorce. This is a strict teaching. <laughs> This feels very heavy to me. In fact, in the parallel story, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples respond to all of this by basically saying that if it's going to be that hard, it's better not to get married at all. We don't want marriage to be that hard. But Jesus' more strict understanding of marriage protects women even more than the Deuteronomy law. 
Economic support was crucial to women in this world, in this society, as vulnerable members. Easy divorce of women, especially women with young children, was evading responsibility for caring for important members of society during a time of maximum vulnerability. And if you know anything about Jesus' teachings, he does not like that. This is strict, but it is also radical. The community that forms around Jesus will be different. It will give social power to the least of these. This is made even more clear during the paragraph after this, when Jesus literally embraces children. The Pharisees' objective here is to maintain a permissive divorce policy, and the more permissive, the better. To them, marriage is a contractual arrangement to be disposed of when a better opportunity walks on by. It makes me think of a person who's just been given a bank loan and immediately asks, so, hypothetically speaking, what might have to happen for me not to pay this back? Any thoughts? Or the time I bought a new computer and the guy at the store told me I had one year for a no questions asked warranty, so I'd better find a way to destroy it before the year was over so I could upgrade to the newer model. I did not, I don't like changing technology. The measures needed for when a marriage fails do not help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Here, Jesus wants to recover God's will for marriage, not argue about possible exceptions to it. For all of this to make sense with what we know about God, who he is, how much he loves us, Jesus must have a solution in mind, a cure in mind for hard-heartedness. If he is teaching a return to the original intention of marriage, he is either being hopelessly idealistic or he believes that the coming of the kingdom will bring away. I'm convinced that the intent here is not to drown us in guilt, is not to drown those who fail in marriage with guilt. The issue of forgiveness, it's not an issue, guys. <laughs> Scripture assures us that all sins are forgiven. No person in seeking forgiveness from God is ever denied it by God. Not ever. But the way forward, it doesn't work automatically or easily. Marriage is not easy. Some of us know this. But also millions of Christians have prayed for God to help them remain faithful, to commit to their marriage vows, even under stress and suffering. And they have found the grace not only to survive, but to celebrate as one flesh. This assures us of God's presence in our midst. This does not mean, this does not mean that those who have experienced a failed marriage did not have God's grace or presence. God with us, with us, means he gives us grace in celebration and suffering alike. To think that one might have more faith than another and therefore has a better marriage or one just doesn't have enough faith to make something better than it is is a dangerously legalistic lie. We are tempted, when we are tempted to think we are more righteous than another, perhaps remember that Jesus also taught that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery in his heart. As we read this passage, this strict teaching from Jesus, let us not make the same mistake as the Pharisees, trying to paint things in black and white, trying to define the line not to cross so they can be assured of righteousness, trying to judge the actions of others by that same line. 
No human can follow the law perfectly. Not then and not now. God knew this. He sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of the law. He is our savior and our source of hope. So as we talk about divorce in our lives today, there's no need to give one another, or even worse, ourselves, the side eye. Jesus knows life is messy, life is complicated. He died, he rose again for the messy and for the complicated. Jesus redeems all things for his glory. My sin, not in part, but the whole, as we just sang. And yet, we don't get a pass here either. Will we face our tendency to move towards impermanent commitments, towards what is easy? Or will we follow Jesus on the costly road of discipleship, in and out of marriage, together as one body, the church? In his book, Mark for Everyone, Tom Wright says this. I might, I might have a quote. In today's church, particularly in the West, anyone who even reads verses 10 through 12 out loud is likely to be called cruel, unfeeling, unforgiving, exclusive, and a host of other names. So many people are bruised by the experience of marriage breakdown that to raise the topic, let alone take a strong line on it, seems, as they might say, unchristian. But the next paragraph in Mark reminds us of another dimension. Who today is liable to earn Jesus' anger at preventing little children feeling the warmth of God's love and welcome? The people who suppose that children and their feelings don't matter and that adults can make whatever arrangements suit them. Marriage breakup can devastate children, even grown-up children, with long-lasting ill effects. Which is kinder and more Christian, to say that these things don't matter or to take a strong line, like Jesus, on behalf of the truly weak and vulnerable? This passage from this book, it just, it speaks to the depths of my heart. You know, <laughs> each and every person's story of divorce is, is unique. Um, and we should have open hearts to listen to one another's story in love and grace without condemnation. But also, under no circumstances should we brush under the rug the earthly consequences of divorce, particularly how it affects our kids. I'm going to go all um, family director on us here for a few minutes. <laughs> um, because I think all of Mark 10 is about family matters, really, and calls us to consider the kids in our midst very specifically. Many studies have been done, years of following kids, hours upon hours of work poured into understanding from a psychological, sociological, anthropological perspective how divorce really affects kids. I, really, I happen to be really interested in these fields of study, um, kind of fascinated by them, because they've, they've helped me wrap my head around the complex world that kids and students um, live in and, and, and helps me think about how to help them flourish in the midst of it. I, I realize this is not a social sciences class, um, so allow me to do a quick summing up of some of the many findings of these studies over the years. If you would like to, if you would like to know sources, let me know. Talk to me later. Kids from divorce are more likely to drop out of school. They're more likely to experience teen pregnancy. They're more likely to end up in poverty and homelessness. They're more likely to experience addiction. They're more likely to have sex at younger ages. They're more likely to themselves experience a failed marriage. They're less likely to have children or get married at all. They are less likely to attend college. They have lower GPAs, and the list goes on. What is at the root of this increased risk? 
Some of it certainly has to do with split incomes, loss of social capital, the loss of the two-parent attentive support system. Absolutely, that, those are definitely things. In my own life, I can tell you that as a single mom raising three daughters on a middle school teacher's salary was a constant source of stress and worry for my mom. Even with my dad willingly, lovingly, and caringly paying child support. I can also tell you that I got away with a lot as a teenager with vastly reduced parent supervision and involvement. This is not my mother's fault. It's mine. Take full responsibility. Even though both of my parents have master's degrees, somehow I graduated high school without having applied to a single college. It's okay, got myself figured out eventually. Just took me a little longer. So yes, these social capital things, these physical things are definitely some of the kinds of things that cause kids to struggle. Even if we had the best government programs, the best nonprofit, whatever it might be to negate these effects, I'm convinced that kids with divorce would still struggle deeply. Now, I'm convinced of this because the real true loss, the one that cuts the deepest, is a loss of belonging. It's a loss of community in which to orient oneself and one's identity as a child. It's an issue of ontology. Over the last 30 to 40 years, some really landmark studies have been done with children of divorce, and social scientists agree. Ontology, or the nature of being, and in how in being we relate to one another, is one of the most important elements here. As Christians, this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we are, after all, made in the image of a Trinitarian God. To get super theological here for a second, because the Trinitarian God encounters God's self, as a relational reality, humans made in the image of God, Imago Dei, also find our being through relational reality. Did you follow that? That was a lot. When we discover that we are alone, either by choice or by circumstance, this ontological insecurity, in essence, <laughs> melts our humanity, the solidity of our humanity. We might feel like we are less than real, or we no longer know who we are. I know some of you are relating to this. So divorce as the dissolution of the primary relational community of a kid damages at an ontological level. It strikes the core of our humanity, causing us to question who we even are now. Now, it's not that parents love their kids any less, or, or even show them less love, far from it in most cases. What children grieve is not some loss of parental love and attention, but the loss of powerful community. The community, most of the time, that created them, that brought them into being. Furthermore, as the two parents separate and form their own unique realities apart from one another, kids face the issue of now having to live between two worlds. What once was two worlds made into one world now divided back into two worlds. Sound familiar? Two flesh, two people, one flesh. And now becomes the job of the child to do what his parents, his or her parents have found they can no longer do, bring these two distinct worlds together. She or he is forced to live between them, moving in and out of each one, having no place to just stay and be. These two worlds become more and more separate as parents seek new life away from a sad past, a good thing. 
A child who stays in contact with both parents must navigate different schedules, rules, perspectives, expectations as she moves back and forth. Instead of family being a, a place for her to have belonging, it is her own being who holds her parents together at all. Two parents who would rather find distance from one another except for her existence. This is disorientingly backwards, to say the least. And the child is asked to do the impossible, to find his being in two divided worlds. Loss of primary community, loss of being in relation to that community. You could probably tell I could go on and on on this topic, probably because the study of it is a reflection of my own life and the lives of so many kids I've walked with over the years. And I, I confess, I often kind of want to just jump over the heaviness of all of this and get to the, so what do we do to fix it part? There must be a way to fix it, right? Right now, you're probably feeling the same way. But this is not something easily or simply mended. But are you ready? Because here comes the truly beautiful part in all of this. <laughs> I love this. If the issue is one of lost community, then the action we take for young people of divorce must be to place community at the center. A community beyond the family, but acting as family. A place to ground their being. Are you beginning to see the flowering of beauty here? Andrew Root writes in his book, Children of Divorce, it must be a community that knows life and death, a community that seeks to be real in light of the unreal, it must be a community that proclaims that in its life, in its actions of being with and for one another, it participates in the fullness of God's love for the world. It must be a community that is not constituted by functions, but like the family, is based in persons and has the goal of loving and being with one another. It must be a community that knows a power that runs even deeper than a mother's love. God is so good. He has already called his church. He has already made a way for his church to be this community. It is the church's community that children need to solidify their shaken ontology. It is the church as community that marriages need to be healthy. It is the church as community that people after failed marriages need to find healing and wholeness. God, God already knows our needs. He has already provided for them. God is so good. Amen? This new community is not perfect. Oh, no. We know that. But a church community that seeks to be rooted in, steeped in, the suffering of the life and death of Jesus Christ, who gave up his own being that we might find ours, can bear shaken people. Hey, guys, come on in. Shaken kids. It cannot replace or modify the family. It can't. It can't erase the wounds and the scars of divorce. But a communion, a communion that suffers with us and for us assures, assures us that we are real, that we have being. We can bear one another's brokenness just as Jesus bears our brokenness. This intergenerational community is bound together in its confession of Christ as Lord and Savior, and this confession acts as a stable foundation.
So kids of divorce, children or grown, myself, hear this today. You suffer, but know that we share your suffering. You are not alone. You may have lost the community that created you, but you are secure in this community that knows a power that brings life out of death, a power in which isolation gives way to belonging. Again, I could go, I go on and on about all the many practical ways that a church can be a good community um, for young people. We can see them, we can acknowledge them, we can make their narratives and stories a part of our own. We can have meaningful interactions between adults and kids. We listen, 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 empathize. We provide sanctuary, provide ritual and routine. We invite young people into the service of others and on and on. I'm sure you could come up with some yourself. A number of years ago, I was given a, a talk to a group of teenagers. I was sharing with the group. I don't know why or, how, or why I was sharing this, but I, I, was, I was sharing with the group how very strange it was for me, um, for my parents to be dating people while I was in high school dating people. It was a, it was a kind of out-of-body weirdness. I wasn't mad about it. It was, it was just weird. And as I said this, a student in the group says very loudly and with deep feeling, heck, yes, it is. <laughs> we were all a bit taken aback at this outburst, <laughs> but we laughed and uh, we moved on. Afterwards, um, I tracked down this young man, a high school boy, great kid, um, and I just, I just put it out there. So I said, your dad, your mom, seeing someone? <laughs> yeah, he says. Uh, he tells me his dad wants to do a double date, um, so dad and son with their girlfriends. How do you feel about that, I asked. <laughs> weird, he says. I don't want to do that. It's not that I don't like her and all, and my dad seems happy, and, and I get that he wants, he wants us to get to know one another, but it feels strange. I totally get that, I said. I think it would be okay to tell your dad just that, too. I told him to let me know how it goes. We went our separate ways, but I know he was seen and heard that day. I have so many stories I could share of the church as community for kids of divorce. Um, and I'll share just one more this morning as I bring this all to a close. One about a student who is incredibly near and dear to my heart. One summer we took a group of high school students um, to a week-long conference, Durango. It was beautiful and fun. Um, we being myself, my co-youth pastor, Matt, and a great group of volunteers. During the week we were given the task of spending time in prayer and writing down a word or two that perhaps we thought or were led by the Spirit to think that they needed to hear. One of our girls with us that week came, from, came to us from a very broken home. <clears throat> Divorce, abuse, alcoholism. On a number of occasions, I was called to one house or the other to be with the kids when the cops were called. I also served as supervised visitation presence when the law required it with one parent or another. At her high school graduation, I acted as intermediary and go-between between her divided family units. It was a deeply broken situation, and she herself was deeply traumatized. So my coworker, Matt, he spent all day praying over her card, all day pouring out prayer over this card, asking God what she needed to hear. And that night, we handed them out to all the kids, um, and she opened her card, and she started sobbing. He had written, worthy of love, 
worthy of love. She must have cried for hours that night. All I remember is not sleeping much. <laughs> not that I ever do in high school camps. She wasn't sure she was worthy of love. But I can tell you that we spent every moment we were given with her demonstrating otherwise. She's a young adult now. The struggle is still very real. But she still knows that we still love her. And so we must find her worthy of love. I know it made a difference. I am grateful to have been loved by a church community. And I am grateful to be in ministry with all of you, loving the young people in our midst, loving the marriages in our midst, and loving the failed marriages in our midst. I just want to close this morning with a, a few more words from Mark. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not try to stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. After he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. Thank you for, thank you for hearing some of my story today.